Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark. A little bit delayed there, but I thought I'd get a suspense, Mark. i to make things a little bit different. Keep people on their toes. Episode 135, Friday, May the 8th, 2020. And lockdown continues, Mark, doesn't it, over most of the, the planet Earth? Um, and it's tiring, as we were talking about just off air before we started. It's um, it's interesting times, isn't it? But, but working in the clinic, it's good that it's pretty busy and the days seem to get taken up with stuff don't they um as i mentioned to you previously we finished work nine to one on saturdays and last saturday i was working and i was still there well after 3 p.m i'm trying to go in on the hamster wheel and trying to catch up with stuff and and phone back clients so um yes and i think you have similar similar process happening at your clinic don't you it's surprising across Australia, at least, how um, how standardly busy veterinary practices are. I reckon, Brendan. Um, I, I know that um, that uh, well. We're all bracing for the economic consequences of the lockdown, um, but I certainly, um, you know, animals are getting sick and having problems at the same rate, um, and um, and people are still worried about them. So we've been. We've been really busy. And I was talking to a an internal medicine specialist about a case that I had, one of the pathology companies, internal medicine specialist um, referral person, and he was saying that um, a lot of clinics, he was asking me how the clinic was going, and he was saying that they, they're very busy and he thinks that what's happening is people are home with their animals and they're seeing lots of um, issues that they would have otherwise missed. So they're taking their animals to the vet and he said they're seeing lots of interesting and quite complex cases being um, referred to them or, or being um, with their telemedicine service. So, yes, um, although I must admit I do have an increasing number of people, um, acquaintances and some relatives that are struggling and some have even lost their jobs in other industries so it is pretty tough out there for a lot of people unfortunately and exactly that we're seeing the same thing up here in newcastle that um that people are um you know spending more time they're walking the dog to get out of the house brendan um and yes. of course they uh there might be four or five people walking the dog. So the dogs, instead of getting 1.2 kilometres, is racking up eight or 10 kilometres. Those lamenesses are becoming apparent. And and I, I know, um, I think you've had the same thing, that people are paying more attention to the stools and they're asking more questions about why their dogs have diarrhoea or um, probably things that they wouldn't have noticed had they been on the treadmill themselves instead of working from home or or maybe even lost their job. So um, it, it is, um, they're, they're new and different times and what will happen over the next few months is very difficult to say, but we hope that um, we're able to, you know, hold things together and, and uh, keep uh, veterinary practice going as it always has. 
Yes, and soon the only stool people will be worrying about is at the bar at their local pub, <laughs> Mark, once they reopen. So, yes. And speaking of when times are getting tough, Mark, tough men get the Remington <laughs> Rapid <laughs> Turbo. This is my review this week. So I went out and purchased a um, hair clipper, um, a men's hair clipper, the Remington Rapid Cut Turbo, um, just over a week or two, oh, actually a couple of weeks ago now, because obviously it's a little bit tricky to get the hair cut, Mark, w- with the lockdown situation. So I, I splurged and I well, actually it was fairly cheap, I'm considering. Um, <laughs> they could probably charge a premium for these products, I expect, at the moment, because they're selling them by the bucket load. So... Yes, um, and the girls went to town with um, what's left of my hair. Um, these days I tend to get a number two haircut or perhaps a number 1.5 all over. Um, so I thought, well, why the hell don't I do it at home and or get it done at home? So I, I purchased this and um, I must admit it's a very, very good product, Mark, very good product. And I'll put a link to it on on the um, webpage, vetgurus.com. And, um, yeah, the girls had a great time there, I must admit. I was a bit worried they were going to give me a, a Dusty Martin haircut. Um, for those of you in Australia know what that is um, with the um, sort of the big undercut, they call it, don't they, um, sort of um, which – is pretty ugly sort of haircut. So, um, yeah, so no, they did a, a good job and um, it's all, I'm all looking um, um, very neat and trim now uh, with what so my question I have left. So my question to you, yes. Brendan, is um, facial hair. How, how does it? Um, how does the Remington Turbo Boost 10,000 cope with facial hair? <laughs> the Remington Rapid Cut Turbo, thank you very much. It No, it's a it's clippers. It's a handheld clipper. Um, it sort of fits in the palm of your hand. Um, it's not like the traditional sort of clippers like you have at the vet clinic. Um, it's sort of, sort of oblong shape. Um, or, like shears. <laughs> No, 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 no. Um, so it doesn't do it doesn't do the facial hair. So no, I use my I use my normal um, electric shaver for that. Um, but yes, yeah, so I was very, very, very happy with it so far, and I don't think I'll be doing any visits to the barber regularly or the hairdresser um, to have my hair done. I think I'll just be using this at home, or the girls will be because they seem to get quite hysterical at certain points during cutting my hair in the bathroom um, a couple of weeks ago um, and then they then they said let's just do your eyebrows um, and that's <laughs> when I started there's a few beads of sweat um, on my forehead but no um, Jane did a very good job with my eyebrows so um, I got quite bushy eyebrows as you know I don't have a mono brow no um, I certainly don't anymore after the Remington Rapid Cup Turbo did its job so no 8.6 out of 10 mark is my score for the Remington Rapid Cut Turbo so not really veterinary related but it's certainly related to what's happening at the time our, our times at the moment with the with the um, lockdown, etc. And with the lockdown, Brendan, um, not only have you had to become a do-it-yourself man with the um, with the, uh, the 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 hair on the top of your head, but you've also had to become a DIY specialist repairing the um, car taillight that you damaged. Oh, that's right. Thanks for bringing that up again. Yes, well, it all went well. It all went well. Um, for those of you who haven't listened to the episode, it was about two or three episodes ago, I think two episodes ago, where I detailed the um, slight accident I had in my wife's car um, when I was trying to place some wood into the back of her hatchback and I smashed 
the tail light on the right-hand side, the driver's side here in Australia. And I phoned up Mazda and, yeah, they were quoting $400 plus for the replacement part, which I thought was a little bit expensive. So I did manage to source a, a, a generic equivalent part for I think it ended up being $125 posted and uh, it took about a week and a half to to come and um, yeah it was good it it fitted perfectly it looks identical to the um, original part that has got a slight smashed bit in it um, that I that has lots of super glue stuck all over it and I tried (laughs) to repair it Um, and yeah probably only took me about 10 minutes to um, the hardest bit was trying to unscrew the little bolts that attached it um, inside the boot or the hatch of the car because they were in a little bit of a tricky spot um all back together mark so all good and i'm in the good books again um with my dear wife annie so all good that's so good to hear but i've got to say it comes as no surprise knowing the d y i DIY specialist you are, the handyman around the home i fully expected you to um print one of those three D print one and install it at zero cost. <laughs> no, I wish I had one of those three D printers, but I think in about ten or ten plus years, most um, small businesses will have them here yeah, because they are quite good. Although the quality of them, I've seen the um, the printouts of some of the ones that still, you know, medium cost of two or three thousand dollars. They're not. Not particular, pretty rough, Mark. Um, with the with the plastic that they sort of spit out with the models, they they're groovy. They're pretty amazing. And I know there's some of the orthopedic vets here in Melbourne who who do have them and use them to to um, to do print three D models of of the repairs that they're going to do, so they can visualize it um, in front of them with those little three D plastic models um, to decide what, how they're going to do their little cuts and and um, platings, etc. Um, do you have any up there who do something similar, Mike? Um, yes, there are some people that do it. And, and one of my friends ha- um, uh, at uh, uh, Macquarie University has a, um, uh, I think, it, oh, what, metal? titanium, a titanium 3D printer. And so he gets, um, you know, a CAD program, CAD plans sent over from human specialists and overnight prints out a um you know a plate tailor made for a particular procedure, buffs it up, polishes it up, rough gets those rough edges that worry you so much all out of the way, and um, sends it over, and the surgeons whack it into the you know jaw or uh, against the tibia or whatever. But it's the you know it's twenty four hours, and they've got their own one, not one off the shelf. Yeah, and it's bespoke for that individual. It's great. Yeah. Oh, bespoke. You used bespoke. Right. I love bespoke. that. <laughs> okay, let's jump into some news stories, Mark, um, before we run out of time. You've got well, a bird story. Now that, I'm, you, now that I'm excited by your, your extensive <laughs> use of language, um, I'm going to talk about flamingos. Flamingos have become, um, because on the way back, you know, I'm going to, uh, talk about our trip to South America, and on the way back, we um, we were going to stop at a town by the name of Al Calafate, which is on Lago Argentina, um, a the largest freshwater lake in Argentina, and flamingos breed there, Brendan. And I was desperate to have a look, but of course, COVID nineteen stopped any opportunity to um, 
to uh, take a leisurely trip home and we had to rush home. So I didn't get to see the flamingos, but this story um, talks about their social life. It's a, a study that was published in Behaviour Processes, which um, talks about, uh, um, for, unfortunately, their groups of uh, flamingos that are in... Um, captive populations. Um, but these birds are, you know, highly social. Uh, we all have seen those wonderful photographs of massive flocks in uh, shallow water. Um, and it's interesting that when you look at those photos, the birds often form into little groups of two or three or four um, so that in amongst the giant tens of thousands flocks, there are little squads. Funnily enough, analogous to what people would do. Um, and, and the other interesting thing is that these birds, um, they live for a long time. And these characteristics, close contact in large groups and, um, and long life, they sort of um, lead to um, those circumstances where social interactions are complex. And so it's no surprise that, um, that they do mate uh, for, you know, essentially um, uh, monogamously stay with their partner as long as that partner's around. But they also form long-standing friendships and, and a whole range of other loose, um, less um, intense relationships. And so, um, and some of those relationships are negative. So they'll like move away from, you know, the nerdy penguin who, or the nerdy um, flamingo that's annoying them. Um, and it's interesting that even when some of the uh, flamingos were demonstrating uh, illness as identified by uh, maybe uh, changes to their feet, um, they would... Um, they would still make an effort um, to hang out with their buddies. Um, so that just emphasises the uh, the importance of these social interactions to their general health and well-being. So there ain't much social distancing going on with some of those flamingos, Mark, <laughs> that's for sure. And which, which of those groups would you place yourself, Mark? You're talking about different types. How do you mean, Brendan? Like what sort of well, you're flamingo am I? Yes, that's right. You're talking about the nerdy one that everybody stays the nerdy, away from. The nerdy one with no, you already know that's the sort of flamingo I am. <laughs> yes. Um, no, it's a good little story, that, and um, some nice pretty pictures of, of, um, of flamingos. So have you managed to take any flamingo pics over time, Mark, apart I have from not. in local zoos? What about in zoos, local zoos? But they don't count. That's cheating, Brendan. <laughs> yes, I've got a couple of um, uh, flamingo shots from zoos. But um, it's interesting. the interesting thing is that many of the uh, zoo collections in Australia, they have not been able to get the flamingos to breed, and, um, and, uh, and they're dying out. Um, a lot of the zoos in Australia have you know, no or very few flamingos left because they've sort of reached their 50, 60-year lifespan and uh, and not bred and now they're passing away. So it is hard to get those photos in zoos in Australia, Brendan. Yes. Well, that's a bit sad. You should have got some pics, Mark. You should have got <laughs> some pics. Um, my news story is a very quick one and it's a, a little report um, that was uh, – at um, MRCVS online from the UK, and it's about a little app, Mark, and um, there are a few apps for this particular um, use, and that's for sleeping respiratory rate um, that's used primarily to monitor 
monitor um, congestive heart failure in response to treatment. Um, but they have a link to a web-based app that is free, and I'm going to link to this with our show notes here. Um, and I think it's, I think, have a funny feeling, I haven't sort of dived in much here, Mark, but I think it is probably tied into one of the one of the pharmaceutical companies who provide one of the products for treating congestive heart failure, but the app is free because if you do a bit of a search on the on the in the Apple ecosystem or the Android ecosystem, you can come up with little sleeping respiratory rate calculators, and a fair number of them cost anything from a dollar to several dollars. So it's good to have some free ones out there, Mark, um, because I don't know about you, but what what I tend to send clients home with, we just spit out a little. Well, we're old school, a piece of paper um, that has a little chart on there and we, we um, it gets the client to write down random times of when their dog or cat is sleeping and measuring that sleeping respiratory rate um, over a, um, a couple of minutes or so um, and then we average it over time. Um, have you used any of these apps, Mark, for clients we've, or recommended? We've, we've just started to and... Um and I think uh, you know we've we've really had just like you great use from the you know a nice little piece of paper with a, a spreadsheet um, that we get people to uh, fill out and and just knowing that uh, sleeping respiratory rate definitely gives us much more confidence about when we need to intervene with additional medications or change dose rates. So we've become much more, I suppose. Um, defined about our uh, congestive heart failure medications. And so it is no surprise that um, the pharmaceutical companies supplying those medications are happy for us to use these apps. Uh, but we've just over the last couple of months started using them and they're awesome. They, um, they do, uh, particularly for people who are comfortable using their phone, um, they, we tend to get, you know, I'm sure I don't, your your clients are probably much more compliant than ours, but we'd get those spreadsheets back and um, and over you know a month we might ask them to do it twice a week, so that would generate eight slots on the the spreadsheet, and maybe one or two of them would be filled. Um, but uh, when they're using their phone, they're much more zealous, and they do tend to um to get all the numbers in. So so it's and the other a- thing is. They tend to always bring their phone to the consultation rather than say, oh, I left the note at home, you know, I left the piece, piece of paper at home, I filled it in, yeah, um, yeah, and I'm sure you get the same. Yes, no, it's good to see. So I'll, I'll put a bit of a link to this um, this little app or this little story mark on the website, but it's good It's good that there's more and more out there and it, it makes sense that these, um, you know, especially these a bit of a time with some of these companies that they spend a bit of money to get a decent app developed and give it away free um, to to help clients at home. So, yes, so that's my one and only little news story there, Mark, today. Um, not quite as exciting as the as the Remington um, clip. <laughs> there we go. I think we'll jump into our main story, which which is potentially a bit of a dry one, but I think it is an important one and it's one you suggested and um, we certainly haven't, haven't spoken about this before and that is microchipping of animals and uh, I think we'll... We'll talk a little bit about the different species that um, are microchipped and um, where in the animal we do or the recommendations generally are for microchipping and the pros and cons of doing that and the pros and cons of, of what happens with microchips and whether we've had any issues with them. Um, and a bit of a shout-out to one of our main sponsors, Microchips Australia. Um, not that they're sponsoring this particular episode, um, 
They just happen to be one of our very good sponsors. And I must admit, their microchips are very good. Um, and I still have. I've got to recharge the the, the live trek, Mark. I, I keep forgetting. You'll have to sneak I, it out of your daughter's car first. Well, I've got a new use for it, Mark. I've got a new use for it. As as our listeners probably don't know, um, daughter number two now has a boyfriend, so um, I need to. And he's a bit of a rev head. He, he he's into cars, and he's 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 um he's um, restored a a. I think it's a Nissan 300Z or ZX or something. It's called a 1980s car. So it's a bit of a muscle car that is restored. He's done a great job of it, actually. Um, so I reckon there's plenty of room to sneak it into his his car, and I might try and somehow. I have to have a talk to Doug how I can wire it up so we can have it set attached to the battery rather than the, the little battery it has here that I have to charge up via the USB. Um so I can track her, you know, um, because she has spent a little bit of time in that car and it does worry me uh, when I hear the, the roar of the motor heading off um, and Sophie's out of there with um, with her friend. Um, but he's um, he seems good, um, just just quietly to, to you, me, and all our hundreds of listeners. <laughs> uh, or a couple of thousand, we don't know how many listens over time with this episode. Um yeah, he's he's um, interesting, and he, he he I don't know whether this is a good thing or not. Hopefully, Soph won't listen to this episode. Um, he plays the drums, Mark. He's in a band. That's a and good he plays thing. The drums. That's a and good he's very good. He's very good at the drums. And uh, I just taught Sophie played a little bit of him um, on her phone a couple of days ago, and um, he's excellent on the piano as well. So he plays several instruments and. Gee, I play zero instruments as far as my musicality is zero. Um, so he's, um, yeah, he's good. I like him. I like him. He's good, got a bit of so a tip. Now, now we do, it's good that we got that, um, <laughs> our uh, disclaimer out of the way because um, yes. uh, Doug, you know, Microchips Australia, one of our sponsors, and we love the fact that they um, support us and, and most aspects of exotic pet medicine in Australia. Um but it doesn't lessen the fact that they have an excellent product, Brendan. Yes, and what we're about to say, I know Doug will be emailing us shortly after this goes to air, correcting us with all the things that we say are completely wrong. Um, yes, um, so all the um, all the actual um, text and, and voice here are ours and um, nothing to do with Doug, so we'll, um, we'll distance him from our mistakes Um up front, Mark. <laughs> so let's talk about microchips generally, and I think most most of um, our listeners in wherever they are in the world, um, microchips are implanted as routine, in, in especially in pet dogs and cats, um, and we will talk about the unusual pets as well and, and wildlife and, and zoo animals, Mark, and certainly it's it's compulsory here, I think, in all states and territories, isn't it, for, for kittens and, and puppies to be sold with a microchip. Is that correct, Mark? You probably know better with the regulations <laughs> than me. Yes, it definitely is, Brendan. And and I don't want to dwell on um, cats and dogs too much, but I did want to make one point, um, and uh, uh, that is that um, I did look at a relatively large collection of um, a large study. It's, it's not yet a study. It's unpublished data, um, and uh, the, the direction that you hold the microchip implanter in kittens. So if you 
aim the needle towards the head of the kitten, um, it is technically possible for a wiggling kitten to open up um, the intervertebral spaces in some of the the uh, uh, um, the spots in the cranial neck wide enough that you can insert the microchip into um, the uh, vertebral canal. Um, and that has happened um, two or three times uh, in New South Wales that I'm aware of. Um, and so my big tip, if you're uh, microchipping kittens, is to aim the needle towards the butt end of the cat because um, that markedly lessens the chance of putting it anywhere dangerous. Now, it you know, of literally uh, hundreds of thousands of chips three is not an overwhelming number, but if I can lessen the likelihood from three out of 100,000 to zero, I'm all for it, Brendan. That's very interesting. So what's happened to those three? Are they now permanently online? Microchips um, <laughs> in their system, in their nervous system. So did they all, you know, die fairly quickly after that or, or no know, they, they didn't they didn't all, they, they, okay two were uh, euthanized for neurologic problems that arose from the um the implant but um interestingly enough they those they were not immediate and they were relatively uh subtle initially and they um built up gradually to the point where um where they started to compromise the quality of life of the animal. Um, but um, one of those cats had them removed, had the chip removed, um, had surgery to have the chip taken out of its uh, vertebral canal. So, um, so yeah, um, it, it's certainly uh, a thing to avoid if possible. So, uh, And I'm, look, I think the other thing I'd say about that is it, it, as far as I understand the anatomy, it's very hard to do that in dogs, but um, the more flexible vertebral column of the cat means that you can do it. And, the, of course, there is a relatively lower number of microchips placed in our rabbits and guinea pigs and uh, other exotic animals, but I, I, um, I placed a microchip in a ferret the other day, Brendan, and um, and I definitely did take the time to point that towards the ferret's tail end, uh, because if I can put it into the neck of into the vertebral column of a kitten, just because they're wiggly and flexible, I don't I don't want to know my chances of doing it with a ferret. Yes, well, we'll t we'll talk about the the different options as far as implanting these in different species, Mark, and whether you sedate or anaesthetise them in, in a sec, I think. Um, so let's get back to, well, we, you, don't, you don't want to talk about obviously much more about dogs and cats and we'll get on to the fun stuff, <laughs> the unusual pets. Um, but the, the only other thing I'd like to just briefly mention, and this is really stretching my, my knowledge on it, is um, what types of um, implants should be used because the difficulty there is um well in australia it should be only the iso compliant i think they call them the full duplex ones that should be used in companion animals and some of the microchips that are imported from other countries um, may not be compliant and then therefore they may be struggle struggling to detect them um, with the various readers even when you're using a multi-reader with them so um, the regulations are re i think and this is where doug, doug will probably correct me are fairly tough here now um, in making sure that they're compliant and and able to be basically a standard um, and i know it will be variable depending on which um, which country you're in and the other the other difficulty is 
the actual registration of the microchips, Mark, and I don't know whether you have this issue up your way or in New South Wales, but um, we still have the problem with some 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 institutions that have run their own database. Um, um, mainly, the um, traditionally they've been just a couple of the welfare type organisations that run their own database. Um, so it's been problematic with when um, these animals have been scanned, these lost animals have been found um, at, um, by the council or, or a vet clinic and trying to contact the database um, and because it may be a recorded message and no after-hours message and um, no 24-7 sort of link um, compared with the, the better um, general um wide databases that work Australia or wide or at least Victoria-wise here, Mark. Um, have you had any issues with that sort of thing? Yes, definitely. It's been the case that um, the, the uh, you know, the, the governmental databases are, I think that, that we've had a problem here in New South Wales because the, the government database, its purpose is for the management of animals. So essentially... Um, so that people who don't do the right thing can be identified and and find, um, and the the repatriation of lost animals has really been a, a lower order um, ambition of those uh, council, the the New South Wales Companion um, Database Companion Animal Database, but um, that's changing, and they certainly are making it um, much much more. Um, functional in New South Wales. But we've always said that um, getting on to one of the Australia-wide um, commercial databases, so even if an animal goes interstate, um, we can still track it and get it home um, because certainly the general public's attitude is that, um, you know, the purpose of going to the trouble of having these things implanted is to ensure that uh, that they can get home if they do get lost. So uh, those databases are absolutely critical to making that happen. Yes, and I th slightly related to that, I think it's really important that every single animal that comes in, and it seems obvious, but I think some veterinarians are a little bit lax in, in not doing this, scanning the animal. And also, even for dogs and cats or, or kittens or puppies that come in with all their little papers and their little microchip number, registration certificate and vaccination certificate that you not only scan the animal and confirm that it's the same chip that's written on the form because sometimes they're done in batches by, by breeders or maybe um, um, and, and they've put the wrong chip, chip marker on the on the little form that they've given the client. But also I always, always uh, mention to the client to ring up the registration place and make sure that they've transferred over their their, their details from the previous owner because sometimes when, when the breeder or the previous owner says they've already um, notified, um, it hasn't been. And the whole aim of it is if that animal gets lost, it gets back to the person who owns the animal. So, yeah, I really stress that with clients and it, it's it's not been rare that we've had um, things being either completely different or the wrong chip in there. And we had a, actually we had an animal fairly recently that that um, was a 
youngish animal that um, was supposedly microchipped and they had all the proper forms that had been transferred over and we just could not find a chip in that animal. So, Well, it's probably from the same litter that we had one that had two chips in it, Brendan. Ah. It and neither, <laughs> neither of them was the number on the, the sticker on the... That's on the where thing. it went. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, but I, and, and especially for, for, for new veterinarians, young veterinarians and and also um, um, nursing staff as well. You know, it's really important to, you know, to get back to the basics with this because you want to get it right and, and just think the whole aim of this is get the animal get the animal back to its owner if it gets stolen or, or, or lost or escapes. Um, and same story with especially phone numbers because they're always the first point of contact and it's amazing how many phone numbers are out of date. And I, I always stress to the owner that, especially with the registration that we most commonly recommend that they that they can update their phone number at any time, unlimited times, and change their numbers. They just can do it on the web even, um, and it's no further cost um, to the client to do that. So what let's about, talk about – yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, what about um, um, our more exotic animals? Do, are, are you uh, regularly microchipping um, rabbits or uh, guinea pigs, ferrets, birds, reptiles? Which ones are you we doing? We, well, we recommend – we do as many as we can. We recommend to all of them. Yeah, basically we recommend microchipping everything. Um, and for the more unusual ones, we think it's even more important. And for species that can often be – and ferrets is the one I always yes. um, stick out that that they may look pretty damn similar, <laughs> and and um, whereas you know you might have a hundred and one different variations of a of a lop rabbit with with coloration that um, there's a hell of a lot of ferrets to my eyes anyway that look exactly the same as the, the ferret next door, and we've had some fantastic success with rehoming ferrets that um, somebody had found that and they've been a, a long way from home. I don't know how they get got to where they were so yes we recommend it in all, all species mark um and um as far as the the, the those small mammals you're talking about the, the the rabbits and the and the guinea pigs and and the, and the ferrets etc and even rats um probably we don't do as many in rats but we certainly do a fair a, a huge number in in rabbits um much lesser so in guinea pigs for some unknown reason um and a reasonable number in the um, ferrets that we see. Um, so the rabbits, uh, um, we we do that um, awake, or we we time it with if it's we do a lot of welfare work with the desexing of the animal, um, or any other procedures. But we we commonly do the rabbits um, um, conscious, um, and I think it is a fairly low risk and and fairly. Um, non-painful um, event for them because they have all that loose skin. Um, we do put a little bit of a dob of um, um, tissue glue on their mark um, if it looks like there's a decent little hole there from, from that needle. Some of them seem to close over quite well, don't they, um, without needing to do anything else, but some of them we seem to need to put a little bit of glue on there. Um, most of them we give a once-off um, injection of a non-steroidal as a bit of a bit of a pain relief to go home in case it was a little bit painful. Um, for the ferrets, Mark, you spoke about those ferrets earlier. My routine for all ferrets, if they if they for any microchipping of a ferret, I, I just quickly gas them down. I don't do any conscious anymore, and I haven't for years. Um, um, I just don't like a wriggling ferret, and I just worry about the the hassles of of not getting the chip where it should. Um, and I think rats. you're exactly right with the ferrets. I think um, the chances that you 
put it somewhere it shouldn't go and cause damage or even worse have it you know very close to the opening of the wound and if you don't put that little drop of tissue cement over the the small laceration they they even with the newer models that have the the um, surfaces that tend to stick a little bit more to tissue, they can still slide out relatively easily if they're um, if they're close to the skin. So I reckon you're right. A quick whiff of gas for the ferrets helps immensely. And there's different there's different size microchips, isn't there? We tend to use the the midi or the mini ones as our midi or our routine, which is a sort of middle sized one from from um, our supplier, which is Microchips Australia, <laughs> um, and that they're, they're a fairly, um, fairly um, smallish one, and that works for the majority of the animals. Um, what you should talk about that you, you may as well take the companion birds one because that's the obvious one for you to take, Mark. What, what's, <laughs> what's the story with those, and where do you inject it? What sort of sites would you go for? Is there a sort of standard for where you inject them? And then we'll do the same with we'll talk about reptiles and other other exotic species. There is obviously there is a. Um, it's useful to have a standard um, standard location, and you know, for most RFID readers, um, if you waved um, that reader over a bird of a decent size, wherever that chip's going to be, you're going to get a reading. But um, over the left um, pectoral muscle is the usual location um, and particularly these days we probably are um, sliding that microchip into a little pocket in the left pectoral muscle um, you know because many of the birds that we do are birds that um, have some monetary value maybe a, a macaw or something like that that people have invested in um, significantly um, and unscrupulous people I know you would find this difficult to believe Brendan but there are people out there who would um, if the microchip was just subcutaneous in these birds they might be um, tempted to just do a little incision and lift that out to uh, confuse the identity of the bird so one of the things that we do uh, and it's an interesting legal point I think that um, at least in our jurisdiction um, uh, that you know, if the the legal way to identify, there's really only two uh, legal ways to identify an animal um, that is uh, RFID chip, a microchip, or um, that's registered, um, and your name's the registered owner, or um, a uh, DNA, a blood sample. Uh, confirming the DNA of that individual. And so when we do those birds, um, we do take a drop of blood and, and store that away in a locked box um, for future reference and place the microchip in the pectoral muscle so it can't be gotten out. And we do use, as you do, um, the MIDI ones, the 8mm by, I think they're 1.2mm. Uh, no, no. Um, anyway. I'm not it's sure. I'm not, I'm not on the website at the moment. So. Yep. Eight, I'm, I'm saying eight, uh, eight millimetres by 1.2 in cross-sectional diameter as opposed to the standard size, which is 11.5 millimetres and 2.21 millimetres cross-section. That's for memory. I'm not on the website, Brendan, so you can double-check so me. So are you, are you giving these birds, all these birds, a whiff of yes. gas or not? Oh, because we're separating some of those... Um, 
pectoral muscle fibers and it is it has been over the years a worry to me that um you know that uh, that we're causing discomfort or that some birds might chew the bloody things out and create huge sores in the pectoral muscles that hasn't been the case but i do do uh, so that we can be precise in the placement uh, we do give them a whiff of gas and uh, and as you mentioned uh, uh, um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory uh, drug as injection during recovery to um, to lessen the the um, the likelihood that they pay it attention afterwards. So left side. What about really tiny birds? Um, obviously, it's much more difficult to place it in the pectoral muscle, so we'll put it over the top. Or on occasions for birds, budgerigar size, you know, fifty grams, forty grams. Um, we often use just the. Um, the uh, um, um, the loose skin over the dorsal surface of the pelvis, just um, uh, rather than going ventrally, we'll go dorsally with some of those very small birds. And what about big birds? Well, so alpacas, emus, as they're called <laughs> overseas. Um, what about those sort of birds? Where do you put the chips in those? Um, I think, well, now you've got me... Um, oh, it's the left neck, I think. Yeah, uh, it's good work. Lucky you're on the website. Um, uh, uh, de- definitely with ostriches, there's a little bit of a um, those large ratites that um, uh, were once worth quite a lot of money. Making sure that they were permanently identified on the the uh, the left neck was the technique. Um, but I think a lot of them now. I know um, some of the zoos will still do the. Um, emus um, um, with a microchip in the pectoral muscle. Yes, yes. Oh, the other thing, the, just yep. before you jump onto reptiles, I was going to yeah. quickly mention uh, Emla. Um, whether people, whether our clients are, whether our colleagues are using this on their clients' animals or not, I don't know. But uh, Emla is a uh, eutectic mixture of local anaesthetic uh, agents. And um, and it's a cream that's uh, commonly used in people. It's the only way to get local anaesthetic agent through the skin um, without giving an injection. And um, we don't use it so much in birds, but we definitely use it in our um, our rabbits and uh, um, ferrets. Uh, um, even if we've got them anaesthetized, um, just having that area deadened for a little while once they're awake um it certainly makes a difference to how much attention they pay to that area yes well we're certainly using increasingly amounts increasing amounts of emla for various um topical treatments for species mark as well yeah it's it's, um it's it's not cheap though is it the old emla and the little tube of emla but um yeah, it's good stuff. Um, so, so our reptiles. Well, the bottom line with the reptiles and implantation is it's it's think left as well, isn't it, Mark? It's the left hand side, um, but it does mean with species like our chelonians, our turtles and tortoises, typically they're inserted in the sort of the hind limb fossa in in um, region in um, a lot of them. Some people have haven't haven't said that. The tricky thing with some of the over the years, the changes with the recommendations for implanting some some wildlife and, and reptiles and snakes, for instance, it's the left-hand side again, but at the caudal aspect of the um, body, um, sometimes intracelomically if they're smaller animals. But at one stage, Mark, I can't remember if you remember this, um, 
the recommendation for snakes was in the left-hand side of the neck region of the yeah. snake. Um, and I know I have injected in that region. And I always thought it was a bit silly, especially with, when I was injecting into um, some of these highly venomous um, snakes. And then down the track, we'd be wanting to scan it. And you have to run the scanner over that neck region. Um, um, so it does mean that some of these animals that have been around for, for many years um, in zoos or, or wildlife that we um, need to basically scan the whole animal just in case if we don't find a chip in the supposed site where it's recommended. Um, so it is important to keep scanning the whole animal there. Um, so, yeah, left-hand side with the with the reptiles there um, is basically where it is. Um, and, and crocodilians, I think you just do, do at the base of the um, sort of skull there near the nuchal crest or whatever they call it, um, I think, um, with them. Um, I've got a croc. Actually, I, I, I've, I've just gone against what I said. I've got a croc that I've been treating recently, Mark, that we were talking about off air. It's a freshwater crocodile with a pretty severe skin issue, but it's, thank goodness, responding to treatment. Um, and I didn't scan it when it came in um, for the first time. So I must do that the next time it comes back in for the revisit. But that's the thing about microchips, and it's one of the reasons I thought it'd be good to talk about it because you do you'd get out of the routine of um, of uh, thinking about them. You've so, and particularly in our current COVID nineteen world, your mind is so wrapped up in other things that um, that those little things slip your mind. And um, and I know I'm the same as you. There's been a couple of cases I've looked back across and gone, "Crikey, we should have." taken that opportunity to slide the microchip into that patient um and so yeah i think it's a don't don't ever feel guilty about that brendan you wouldn't be the uh the um the the worst offender amongst the two people on this podcast that's for sure thank you um other species well just briefly um fish um traditionally it's like the um the uh, the amphibians um, intrasolomic um, is is where it is in in frogs and other other amphibians um, with fish. I think it varies depending. Some of the really big fish they they just do on the left hand side of sort of the pectoral region, don't they, Mark? Um, I can't remember last time I've done implanted a fish. Have you done many? Um, I haven't done any fish, so I bow to your superior knowledge of. Um of, uh, um, Probably incorrect knowledge, but um, yeah, that, that that's um, off the top of my head thoughts there. Um, and the other use of microchips, Mark, is in the field with um, just briefly with with monitoring wildlife, and they've um, set up some very interesting little um, uh, data loggers that um, that can be tied in with these um, chips and weigh scales as well. So when they're they're um, catching animals or, or getting animals to walk through little little um, little traps or little paths um, and these are often even um, some fancy setups where they have little solar panels um, so they're, they're powered and they can be out there in the field for, for many weeks or months um, and they'll be logging the animals that are going over the, these little pressure pads or, th or through the gates and the scanning marks so they're quite unique some of these setups um, with them and um, that sort of other uses for these for these microchips so yes yeah, so microchips um Anything else you want to say about microchips, or if we? Um, I think we've exhausted. We'd be. I'm sure that people <laughs> will come up with um, uh, some questions for us, and I think it's a good thing for us to, um, particularly with something like microchips, there'll be some perspective that uh, that we haven't touched on that um, that people will. Uh, 
have ideas about. And so we, we're desperately keen for anyone that's listening that has a interesting microchip story or a, a, a question to ask us. Um, we'd be keen to field that, wouldn't we, Brendan? Absolutely. And I do know at least one one person who has decided to microchip themselves um, just because they could. Um, apparently it was pretty painful when they did it, um, and I don't know whether they, their little arm goes off every time they go through the, um, through the checkpoints at airports, etc. I suppose it wouldn't be because they're passive tr- transponders, aren't they? So I presume they wouldn't go off with the little, little metal scan. That's something Doug can answer um, in his email with 101 corrections that he'll be giving us. Um, for next week um, but I think we're all the outro man's here we better get out of here and we'll talk to you all next week thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.